Hi, my name is Anthony Buzzard, and I'm speaking to you from a Bible college in Atlanta, Georgia. And this tape is dedicated to some further reflection upon the great issue of who God is and who the Son of God is in relationship to his Father, the God of Israel. Jesus was a Jew who quoted the Creed of Israel, the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. He recited it and proclaimed it to be the central doctrine of God in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 and following. One of the most important factors in studying the issue of who God is in Scripture is to recognize that Jesus was a Jew. And Jewish people think in terms of the great purpose and plan of God. Jesus, of course, was steeped in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, and he was unaware of Greek philosophy, which affected the church in, in years subsequent to Bible times. Jesus could barely open his mouth without reflecting upon the verses of Scripture, which no doubt Mary had taught him as he sat on her knee. He quotes Scripture and alludes to it with the greatest of ease. One of the great facts of Scripture is that God had a plan and a purpose. In Jewish theology, and remember that Paul also was trained by Gamaliel, the Jew, one of the great factors in Jewish theology is that all the great things of God's purpose and plan exist in the mind of God before they become real, before they enter reality and appear on earth. For example, Jewish writings say that the tabernacle, that Moses, repentance, the kingdom and so on, and the Messiah himself all exist in the great plan of God before they become reality in actual fact in history. This type of thinking is very common in our New Testament documents. You read this in Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. We know that in all things God works for good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, the ones he foreknew, which of course included the Messiah himself in 1 Peter 1.20, those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also glorified or justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. In other words, he gave them glory in his intention, yet not, in fact, in reality as yet. He glorified them, past tense, and yet Christians have not yet been glorified. Romans 8, 28 to 30. In Ephesians chapter 1, we find the same sort of language. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul wrote, who has blessed us in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing in Christ, because because he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which is freely given us in the one he loves. The language here is exactly the same as 1 Peter 1.20 and 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, in which both Christians and the Messiah, be it noted, are foreknown from the foundation of the world. Paul goes on then in Ephesians chapter 1, In him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, 
reminiscent there, of course, of the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, the mystery of the kingdom of God, the mystery of God's will, given us by the word of the kingdom, Matthew 13, 19. And Paul goes on, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. And that pleasure was to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That, of course, is Paul's picture of the future kingdom. And then in Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7, When the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, the Spirit which calls out, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you're a son, God has made you also an heir. Now this question of foreordination is critically important in the matter of deciding who Jesus is in relationship, in relationship to his Father. We've already pointed out in another tape that Jesus proclaimed the Shema of Israel. He subscribed to the cardinal tenet of Judaism, which is that the Father is the only true God, the only one who is truly God, John 17:3. Paul likewise spoke of one God, the Father, and of one Lord, Messiah, in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Notice there are two lords, but only one God. The one God is the Father. The one Lord God is Adonai in the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. But the Messiah is not Adonai, but Adoni, the non-deity superior of David, my Lord. That word, my Lord, in Psalm 110, verse 1, a text which is critically important for New Testament Christology, should be written with a lowercase l, as it is in the Revised Standard Version. The word Adoni, in all of its 195 occurrences, never means deity. On the other hand, the word Adonai, in all of its 449 occurrences, always refers to deity, the one God. Now, when we come to the Gospel of John, it's customary for people to stress and emphasize certain verses in an effort to produce the post-biblical creedal belief that God is, in fact, three persons. In contemporary times, a apologist for the Christian faith, uh, led, for instance, by Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man, are telling us that God is, in fact, one what in three whos. It seems to me that this is a problematic point of view. A person in your audience might well raise his hand and say, where in the Bible is God said to be one what? Since God is designated by singular masculine pronouns and, and followed by singular third person singular verbs constantly, multiple thousands of times, and since singular masculine pronouns, I, me, he and him and so on designate persons, where would we find that God is clearly one what, as Hank Hanegraaff proclaims? The Trinity is going to be very difficult to defend when people ask questions about the Jewish faith on which Jesus based his whole teaching. One day, indeed, I think a theological storm is likely to erupt over the translation of certain verses in John's Gospel. Let me give you an example. In John 16:28, in the NIV translation, 
we read something about Jesus going back to the Father. And in John 20, verse 17, again in the NIV paraphrase translation, we read of Jesus returning to the Father. Now, is this in fact what the Greek text says? A moment's reflection will show that this paraphrase misrepresents the text of Holy Scripture. There's nothing at all about Jesus going back or returning to the Father, implying that he'd been there literally with the Father before he came and ministered uh, in his historical ministry. No, the text simply says in John 16:28 that he's going to the Father, and in John 20, verse 17, that he's ascending to the Father. We need to be aware, then, that translations are subtle forms of interpretation. A great deal of bias is possible when translators are convinced that the text ought to be saying something. But that's to argue in a circle. We must not assume certain things and then read them into Scripture. Rather, we must stand outside of Scripture objectively and look at the facts without the clutter of tradition in our mind. The Bible does not say that Jesus is going back to the Father, or that he went back to the Father. Rather, it says he went to the Father. The idea of him returning, found there in John 16:28 and 20:17 in the NIV, and the Living Bible and other translations, does not give us a clear idea of what the text of Scripture actually says. One day, I think, a theological storm is likely to erupt over the translation of John 1, verses 1 to 3, in our standard versions. At present, the public is offered a wide range of renderings here, from purely literal to the freely paraphrased. But do these translations represent John's intention, or are they traditional, based on what, quote, everyone accepts? Have they sometimes served even as a weapon, in the hands of Christian orthodoxy, to enforce the decisions of post-biblical creeds and councils? The seeker after truth, of the Berean style mentioned in Acts 17.11, investigates all things carefully. This is particularly the obligation of those of us who teach and preach uh, Bible topics, lest we fall into the very unfortunate trap of misleading those who hear us. According to the findings of a recent monumental study of the origin of Christ in the Bible, a book called Born Before All Time? Question mark, a debate about the origin of Christ by Karl Josef Kuschel, a German theologian, systematic theologian. According to his words, Bible readers instinctively hear the text of John 1.1 as follows. In the beginning was Jesus, the Son, and Jesus with, was with God, and Jesus was God. Now, this understanding of the passage provides a vital support for the traditional doctrine of the Godhead shared equally by Father and Son from eternity. The contemporary English version goes far beyond the Greek text and gives us this rendering. The Word was the one who was with God. No doubt, according to that version, the Word would be equivalent to an eternal Son, one of the major props of Trinitarian theology. But why, Franz Josef Kuschel asks in his wonderful study of the issue of pre-existence, why do readers leap from the Word, the word Word, that is, W-O-R-D, Logos in our Greek text, why do they leap from the word word to the word son? The text simply reads, in the beginning was the word, not in the beginning was the son. The substitution of son for word has had a dramatic consequence 
on the way people think of this text. It has exercised a tremendous influence on Bible readers. But John's text does not warrant that switch. Again, John wrote simply, in the beginning was the Word. He did not say, in the beginning there was the Son of God. There is, in fact, no direct mention of the Son of God until we come to verse 14, where we read, the Word, not the Son, but the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of a unique Son, full of grace and truth. The Son, therefore, is what the Word became. But what is the Word? Imagine I told my child, our car was once in the mind of its designer, and now here it is in our garage. The child might respond, how could that car fit into the head of the designer? It, it would be too wide, too big. Fair point. But based on a large misunderstanding. The application to our problem in John 1.1 is simply this. The fact that the word became the man Jesus, the Son of God, does not necessarily mean that Jesus, the Son of God, is one-to-one -one equivalent to the word before Jesus, the Son's birth. What if the word, the self-expression of God, became embodied in the man, Jesus? That makes very good sense of John 1, verse 14. It is commonly known to Bible readers that in Proverbs 8, wisdom is said to be with God. That's to say, God's wisdom is personified. It's treated as if it were a person. Not that Lady Wisdom was really a female personage alongside God. Now we accept this sort of language, usually without any confusion or question. When the famous uh, St. Louis Arch was uh, finally constructed, an accompanying explanatory video announced that the plan had become flesh. The plan, in other words, was now in concrete form. The arch is not one-to-one -one equivalent with the plans on the drawing board, obviously. The arch is made of concrete. The plans were drawn on paper. Here's a very remarkable and informative fact. If one had a copy of an English Bible in any of the eight available English translations before the appearance of the King James Version in 1611, one would gain a very different sense from the opening verses of John. In the beginning was the word, small w, and the word, small w, was with God, and the word was God. All things came into being through it, and without it, nothing was made that was made. All things, you notice, were made through it, through the Word, not through Him. And so those English versions did not rush to the conclusion, as does the King James and its followers, that the Word was at that stage, in the beginning, a person, the Son, before the birth of Jesus. If all things were made through the Word, as an it, a quite different meaning emerges. The Word would not be a second person existing alongside God the Father from eternity, and the result, one of the main planks of traditional systems about members in the Godhead and an eternal trinity would be removed. There's more that could be said about that innocent sentence, in the beginning was the word. There's no justification at all in the original Greek language for placing a capital W on word and thus turning it 
into a person, that's an interpretation imposed on the text, added to what John wrote. But was that what he intended? question is, what would John and his readers understand by word? Well, quite obviously here, there are echoes of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, using his word, let there be light. God said means, of course, God uttered his creative word. He expressed himself. He uttered his self-expressive word, the medium of his creative activity his powerful utterance. And so in John 1, 1, God expressed his intention, his word, his self-revealing creative word, the index of his mind and purpose. But absolutely nothing in the text, apart from the intrusive capital letter on word in our versions, would make us think that God was in company with another person, much less with his son. The word which God spoke was in fact just the word of God, the expression of himself. And one's word is not another person, obviously. Sensible Bible study would require that we attempt to understand what word would mean in the background of John's very Jewish thinking. Commentators have long recognized that John is thoroughly Hebrew in his approach to theology. We remember he wrote his whole book, according to John 20, verse 31, with the single aim of proving that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. A very Jewish aim, by the way. John is steeped in the Hebrew Bible. Word, the word word, logos or davar in the Hebrew, has appeared some 1,450 times, plus the verb to speak 1,140 times throughout the range of the Hebrew Bible, known so well to John and Jesus. On no single occasion did that word, davar, logos, ever mean anything other than an utterance promise, command, and so on. Never, ever a personal being. Never the Son of God. Never a spokesman. Always the index of the mind, an expression, a word. There's a large range of meaning for this particular word, logos, according to the Dictionary of the Old Testament Theology, the Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis, Volume 1, page 912. I quote, in a legal context, word means dispute, verdict, provision. Otherwise, decree, conversation, report, text of a letter, lyrics of a song, promise, annals, event, commandment, plan. And there they cite Genesis 41:37, 2 Samuel 17:14, 2 Chronicles 10:4, Esther 2:2, 2, 2, Psalm 64:5 and 6, Isaiah 8:10. Another meaning, of course, is just language. Daniel 9, 25, the decree of a king, thing, matter, or event. Special importance, the dictionary goes on to tell us, is the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. In Judges 3, 19 to 21, Ehud delivers a secret message, in this case a sword to kill him. Yahweh commands the universe into existence by his word. Yahweh tells the truth so everyone can rely on him and his word. The word of the Lord has power because it's an extension of Yahweh's knowledge, character, and ability. Yahweh knows the course of human events ahead of time. Similarly, human words reflect human nature. The mouth speaks from the abundance of the heart and the mind, as Jesus said. 
Words are used for good or evil purposes. Proverbs 12.6 Words can cheer, correct, and calm. As a man thinks and speaks, so is he. A person, therefore, is his word. In the beginning there was the word, and that's the word of God. His utterance, his plan, his intention, design, and promise. That was my comment at the end uh, of the quotation from the Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis. But John, you see, did not say that the Word was a spokesperson. Word had never had that meaning before. Of course, the Word can become a spokesperson, and it did when God expressed himself in his Son by bringing Jesus onto the scene of history. So then the book of Hebrews can say, God, after he had spoken long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, spoke at the end of those days in a son, just as in the parable that Jesus gave, the son came only at the end of a series of prophets whom the Jewish people killed. The son did not precede the prophets. He came at the end of a sequence of prophets. First the prophets, then the Son of God, in that order. The first Adam precedes, of course, the second Adam. To reverse that order would be to introduce a considerable confusion into the whole biblical scheme. Clearly God did not earlier speak through his unique Son, but later he did. There's an important chronological distinction between the time before the Son and the time after the Son. There was indeed a time when the Son was not yet existing, and God was not yet speaking through him. So it would be a serious mistake of interpretation to discard the massively attested meaning of word in the Hebrew Bible, in the Hebrew matrix from which John wrote, and attach to it a meaning it never had. And that meaning would be personal, even spokesperson. No lexicon of the Hebrew Bible ever listed davar, or logos, the Hebrew and Greek words for word, as a person, God, angel, or man. And then we read in John's Gospel that the Word was with God. So read our versions. And so the Greek might be rendered, if one has already decided, against all the evidence, that by Word John meant a person, the Son of God, alive before his birth. But allowance must be made for Hebrew idiom. Without a feel for the Hebrew background, as so often in the New Testament as so often in the New Testament, we are deprived of a vital key to understanding. We might ask of an English speaker, when was your word last with you? Plain fact that it is in English, that in English, which is not the language of the Bible, a word is never with you. Now, a person can be with you, certainly, but not normally a word. But in the wisdom literature of the Bible and other Jewish sources, a word certainly can be with a person. And the meaning is that a plan or purpose, a word, is kept in one's heart ready for execution. For example, Job says to God in Job 10.13, Yet these things you have concealed in your heart, I know that this is with you. The New American Standard Version gives a more intelligible sense in English by reading, I know that this is within you. The NIV reads, in your mind. But the Hebrew reads, with you. 
In Job 23, 13 and 14, it is said of God, with his soul he desires, what his soul rather desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. Meaning, of course, that God's plans are stored up in his mind. God's word, therefore, is his intention held in his heart as plans to be carried out in the world which he has created. Sometimes what God has with him, as the Hebrew idiom has it, is the decree he has planned. With this we may compare similar thoughts. This is the portion of the wicked man with God and the inheritance which tyrants receive from him. Job 27, 13. And again in 27, 11, I will instruct you in the power of God what is with the Almighty I will not conceal. Or take the related concept of wisdom. In Job we find this. I quote, The deep says, It, wisdom, that is, is not in me. And the sea says, It's not with me. Job 28, 14. To have wisdom or word with one is to have them in one's mind and heart. With him, I quote again, with him is wisdom and strength. To him belong counsel and understanding. Job 12 verse 13. And of course wisdom, that is lady wisdom, was with God at the beginning. Proverbs 8, 22 to 30. In Genesis 40 verse 14 we read, Keep me in mind when it goes well with you. And the text reads literally, Remember me with yourself. From all these examples, and there are others too, it's clear that if something is with a person, it is lodged in the mind, often as a decreed purpose or plan. Paul remarked in Galatians 2.5 that the gospel might continue with them, pros, using the same preposition as we find in John the early verses there, the word was prostantheon, with God. The gospel is to remain with the disciples in Galatians 2.5. That's to say, remain in their thinking, in their mind. Thus in John 1.1, in the beginning God had a plan, and that plan was within God's heart and was itself God. In other words, the plan was the very expression of God's will. It was the divine plan reflective of his inner being, close to the heart of God. John is fond of the word is, but it's not always an is of strict identity. Jesus is, according to John, the resurrection. I am the resurrection, Jesus said. God is spirit. God is love and is light. And also we might compare in the Old Testament, all flesh is grass. In fact, God is not actually one-to-one -one identical with light and love, and Jesus is not literally the resurrection. The word was God means that the word was fully expressive of God's mind. A person, after all, is his mind, metaphorically speaking. Jesus is the one who can bring about our resurrection. God communicates through his spirit. That's the meaning of God is spirit. The word is the index of God's intention and purpose was in his heart, expressive of his very being. As the translator's translation, an excellent translation, by the way, done by 35 missionary linguists, and they sense the meaning 
of the beginning of John's Gospel as follows. The Word was with God and shared His nature. The Word was divine. And the note uh, expl explicates that further by saying that the Word shared the nature of God. The Word then is the divine expression, the very self of God revealed. The Greek phrase theos inologos, I'm using the modern Greek pronunciation here, the Word was uh, was God, can be rendered in different ways. The subject is word, logos, but the emphasis falls on what the word was, God or theos, which stands at the head of the sentence. Theos, eno logos, the word was God. God here is the predicate. It has a slightly adjectival sense, which is very hard to put exactly into English. John can say that God is love or is light. That's not an exact equivalence. God is full of light and love, characterized by light and love. The word is similarly a perfect expression of God and his mind. The word, we might say, is the mind and the heart of God himself. In the beginning, God expressed himself. Not in the beginning, God begat a son. That came later, according to Luke 1.35 and Matthew 1.20. Now that switch from word to son has been responsible for all sorts of confusion and even mischief. Some actually have killed others over the issue of the so-called eternal son. The great difficulty which faces those who say that there was a God the Father in heaven while there was a God the Son on earth is that it implies a fragmenting of the unity of God tells us of two persons who are God and speaks in dangerously polytheistic terms, implying two gods, one God the Father in heaven, another God the Son on earth. There was on that theory a God who did not become the Son and a God who became the Son. This appears to fragment the unity of God. It undermines and compromises the first commandment, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, Mark 12, verse 29. A leading scholar at Fuller Seminary, Colin Brown, in an excellent article on the issue of the Trinity, appearing in the Ex Auditu magazine in 19... Uh, I should say journal, I'm sorry, Ex Auditu journal in 1991, says that to be called son of God in the Bible means that you are not God, and he further says that to read John 1, 1, as though it said, in the beginning was the Son, is patently not right. Of course, if one has taken a false step, first of all, by assuming that the Word, in the beginning, was the Son, then the phrase, the Word was God, can only confirm the impression that there are two members of the Godhead, both of whom are somehow one God. However problematic and illogical the sleep into a duality in God may be, Bible readers have been conditioned to make that leap painlessly. But only, we think, at the cost of contradicting what Jesus later said. Jesus elsewhere proves himself to be a staunch believer in the unitary monotheism. God is one person, that is, of the great Jewish heritage. Addressing the Father, Jesus says unequivocally, You, Father are the only one who is truly God. 
the only true God, the one who alone is truly God, John 17, 3. We really do not need an army of experts, linguists or theologians to help us understand that simple sentence. Jesus refers again to the Father as the one who alone is God in John 5.44. These are echoes, surely, of the pure, strict, unadulterated monotheism of the Hebrew Bible and thus of the Jews for centuries. God remains in the New Testament the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had and has a God. And Jesus God is the Father, the one God of John 17.3. How exactly like the Old Testament this is. Well, we read, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Malachi 2.5 You are great, you are alone. Psalm 86 verse 10 You alone, whose name is Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. Psalm 83 verse 18 How beautifully this harmonizes with Paul's great creedal declaration for us Christians, there is one God, the Father, and none other than He. See 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 and 6. This is really an, an unambiguous statement about how many persons there are in the Godhead. Theology has tragically tried to disturb this simple truth. It's been argued that Jesus in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6 is called the one Lord, and therefore Paul must have been distributing the Shema between God and Jesus. The argument has been, if Jesus is the one Lord, then he must be the one God. But there's a very obvious fallacy in that reasoning. Certainly Jesus is Lord in the New Testament. But if the Father is the only one who is truly God, then it must follow logically that Jesus cannot be that one God. Jesus is indeed the unique Lord, but in what sense? Lord in what sense? This is where the celebrated Psalm 110 verse 1 comes to our help in a very precious fashion. That verse wins the prize for being the most frequently mentioned Old Testament verse in the New Testament. It's referred to or alluded to some 23 times and by implication many times more. In that psalm, the one God, Yahweh, speaks to David's Lord in the Hebrew language, Adoni. Now, Adoni appears 195 times in the Old Testament and never refers to the one Lord God. Custodians of the text carefully distinguish between the God who is Lord, the one God who is Lord, and all other superiors. The Lord God is called Adonai 449 times in all, in every one of its occurrences, while human and very occasionally angelic superiors are called Lord, my Lord, Adonai. Once again, the translators took liberties and put a capital letter in English, for Lord in Psalm 110, verse 1. But the Revised Version of 1881, the Revised Standard Version, the New Revised Standard Version, corrected that mistake and wrote correctly, Lord with small l, in Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus is indeed the one Lord Messiah, Luke 2:11. He's the my Lord of Mary, uh, of Elizabeth, I should say, 
when she greeted Mary, the mother of my Lord, drawn from Psalm 110, verse 1. To give Jesus then his full title, he is the Lord Jesus Messiah, the Lord Messiah, who is Jesus. But he's not the Lord God, since there's only one in that category. How fearfully complex and illogical it is to have one God, the Father in heaven, while supposedly another, who is equally the one God, walks on earth. Would that not be two gods? How impossibly difficult it would be to imagine that the Lord Messiah, who expressly said that he did not know certain things, was actually at the same moment the almighty, omniscient, knowing everything, omnipresent God of the universe. On that amazing theory, the baby in the manger was also, at the same time, upholding the universe with his unlimited powers. In the beginning, there was a divine word, so John wrote, and it was stored in God's heart and was his own creative self-expression. All things came into being through that divine word, and without it, nothing was made that was made. And then the word, or the plan, became flesh. It was realized in a human person and dwelt among us. That living expression of God's intimate purpose for mankind was Jesus Christ. He was the wisdom and the knowledge and the word of God expressed in human form. Jesus was the human person supernaturally conceived as the Son of God. Modern scholars are coming to the same conclusion about John's opening words. In the beginning there was the divine word and wisdom. The divine word and wisdom was there with God and it was what God was. That's the translation of the complete Gospels annotated scholars version revised, uh, edited by Ed Miller, published by Harper, San Francisco, 1994. The simple English Bible reads as follows. In the beginning there was the message. The message was with God and the message was deity. He was with God in the beginning. And Phillips, J.B. Phillips, celebrated New Testament in plain English has this. At the beginning, God expressed himself. That personal expression, that word was with God and was God and existed, he existed with God from the beginning. Admittedly there, Phillips still introduces the personal pronoun he, but he does rightly render the word as the self-expression of God. These vers versions show that it's entirely legitimate to think of the word as God's utterance not his son at that stage of history. So then, when did the Son of God begin to exist? Luke had no doubt about the reason and basis for Jesus being entitled to be called the Son of God. It was as a consequence of the supernatural miracle wrought in the womb of Mary that Jesus is truly the Son of God. For that reason indeed, theoke in the Greek, of Luke 1.35. For that reason precisely he will be called the Son of God. For what reason? There's a causal connection here, but what is the reason for Jesus being entitled to be called the Son of God? Not because he's always been the Son of God, but because of the miracle engineered in the womb of Mary under the influence of the power of the Holy Spirit overshadowing the mother of the Lord Messiah. Luke did not believe in an eternal Son, nor did Matthew, nor did Peter, 
and nor, we think, did John or Paul, when rightly read uh, in harmony with their other Bible-writing companions. The Son was supernaturally conceived in history when Mary became pregnant. Jesus, therefore, is the expression of God's wisdom and plan. As Matthew, Luke, and Paul agree, Jesus is wisdom, wisdom embodied in a living, breathing person who entered the world and conscious existence through birth from his mother. Truly a man, the last Adam, son of David, son of God and Messiah, that prophet raised up like Moses, Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18. Jesus is indeed wisdom to us, 1 Corinthians 1, 24 and 30. He is also the perfect product of wisdom, her unique child, Matthew 11:19 and Luke 7:35. Although in those passages John the Baptist may also be described as a son of wisdom, a product of wisdom. Other New Testament writers proclaim the same truth about how God finally spoke in a son, but only in New Testament times. Isaiah 44:24 proclaims God to be alone at the creation, unaccompanied, unaided, in the creative act described in Genesis 1. The Son was not there. The Son, indeed, is the reason for the creation. And so in Colossians 1, 15 and following, we read that in Messiah, in Jesus, the firstborn, that's to say because of Jesus, not by him, as mistranslated in many versions, but in him, because of him, as suggested by the Moulton Milligan Grammar of New Testament, because of Messiah, all things were created. All things were created through him and for him, because he's the firstborn who inherits the world. God, therefore, created the heavens and the earth. God rested on the seventh day, Hebrews 4, 4, and he created the universe for the sake of the Son. It would be strange for Paul to say that the creation had been executed by the Son for the Son. No, God made the creation for the Son. All things were made, that's the divine passage, made by God, that is, for his Son, with his Son in mind. The same thing would be true in Philippians 2. There's no mention there of pre-existence. Paul is not discussing some pre-existent second member of the triune Godhead. He's talking about the model given by the human Messiah. Jesus is indeed in the form of God. He has an equality uh, with God. His character is like that of God. He reflects the divine majesty. He's the image of God. He's the visible form and image of God, as he was indeed when he appeared in history. But Paul is not talking about any pre-existent son there. It was that model of servanthood that Paul was interested in. He wanted Christians to imitate the lifestyle of the historical Jesus. He's not asking anybody to imitate the life or pattern of behavior of one who was not a human being but pre-existing from eternity. That would be very unreal. Paul is more practically minded. He takes a look at the historical Messiah and his whole life was one of servanthood. He gave himself, spent himself on behalf of his disciples. He emptied himself of divine privilege and his rights to kingship and so on in order to be a servant. That's plain in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus is the expression of God's wisdom and plan, and other New Testament writers proclaim the same truth about how God finally spoke in a son 
in New Testament times. Jesus, therefore, is the fulfillment of the greatest of all of God's promises. Paul wrote to Titus in verse one, uh, chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, he speaks of the knowledge of the truth in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago, long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested it, namely his word in the proclamation, the gospel. According to his own purpose, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.9 That's Paul's version of the word, the pre-existing plan, becoming flesh and being manifested in history, as exactly in the words of 1 Peter 1.20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but manifested in these last times. If we read John and his introduction in this fashion, we find him proclaiming unitedly with the other gospel writers the supremely important fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, John 20, verse 31. On that great truth, the church is to be founded, Matthew 16, 15 to 18, and united. And for that single purpose, to demonstrate and urge belief in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, not to urge belief in him as co-equal co-eternal member of a triune Godhead, but as belief in Jesus as the Messiah, John wrote his whole gospel. Chapter 20, verse 31. Notice carefully that the Messiah is the human Lord of David, Psalm 110, 1, the Son of God, and there's only one God, the Father. John 17, 3, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 6. Remember, too, the wise words of a leading contemporary scholar, to be called Son of God in the Bible means that you are not God. Read John 1, 1, as though it meant in the beginning was the Son, would be patently wrong. We trust that these reflections on the issue of the relationship of God to the Son will be helpful, and we're urging a re-examination of some of these great themes of Scripture which allow the full beauty of the original Hebraic monotheist theistic creed of Israel to shine forth with renewed clarity. I'm Anthony Buzzard, speaking to you from Atlanta Bible College. We have uh, various pieces of literature we'd like to offer you. The telephone number for obtaining these, if you would like, is given at the end of this program. It'll be repeated, that is. The number is 800-347-4261. We also give our website address, email address, and invite you to pose questions, objections to what we've laid out, and may God bless you in your service of truth and your service of the Messiah.